Good morning, and thank you for being with us at the Meaningful Facebook this morning. Again, we'll be in Matthew chapter 18. Those of you in the auditorium, please stand. Let's read in Matthew 18. And beginning in verse 15. It says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so again I say that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often should I, shall I my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee seven times, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of a servant. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought to him which owed him ten thousand talents, for as much as he had not to pay his lord, commanded him to be sold, and his wife, children, and all that he had in payment be made. The servant therefore fell and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee. When the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not. But when and cast him into prison till he shall pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had, what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their Lord all that was done. And his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Should not thou have had <coughs> compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise, Shall my heavenly Father do unto you, if ye from your heart forgive not every one his brother their trespasses? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again this morning as we come in your house, and we pray that you would to our heart, Lord, that you would open up our understanding to receive your holy word this morning as we deal with that needful subject of forgiveness, Lord. And we pray that you would uh, again just bless us and give us that understanding necessary as we will deal with the importance of reconciliation within the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, bless thy word and be with us this morning. For we ask all this in your most holy and blessed name. Amen. Please be seated. So again, this morning, as we return to Matthew 18, uh, we'll look at verses 15 to 35 that we just read, looking at our last sub-point, the reconciliation in the kingdom. Well, we have seen already a, the relationship in the kingdom, verses 1 to 11, the restoration in the kingdom, 12 to 14. And in these verses, we have seen that the Lord dealt with the disciples regarding the need of humility. In verses 1 to 14, the Lord even used a little child to teach him how to be humble. Our Lord basically continues to teach them these the verses and then gives them gives them a parable about the lost sheep in verses 12 to 13, and the Lord concludes with the promise of preservation there that we spent a lot of the time in verse 14 last time. But then in verses 15 to 20, our Lord is not going to teach his disciples and us also on the importance of reconciliation, which includes the church, as he brings in the fearful teaching even of discipline in the church. But before this, Christ will give us prerequisites along with instruction to help uh, deal with the issue of forgiveness, reconciliation, and, if necessary, church discipline. Our Lord leaves the teaching of the strange sheep to now the offending sheep. As verse 15 says again, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And here we have the scenario, real simple scenario that Christ put before us. 
a brother offends another brother, okay? And this teaches us that offenses will come. I mean, we're human beings. There are always going to be offenses. People are going to get their feelings hurt in various ways and, you know, various things. But, but we also see is that sinning against a brother is also apparently a concern to God. And normally, this should be easily resolved by confessing, you know, to the other brother that has offended you and letting them know, brother, you offended me, you hurt my feelings. And, you know, that the brother that did that would say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, that it would be reconciled. <clears throat> now, even before we get to the aspect of church discipline, let us understand that what we have here, I think, is genuine believers. Okay? And one brother goes and sins against another brother and offends him. Or we can say sin against another brother. <clears throat> and I believe that the application here is between two genuine believers that are in the church or within the kingdom of God. And apparently was the, the offense was so great, okay, that the offended believer was really hurt, really, really hurt. Harm was really done to that person. Hurt was done by the offended person and the injured brother was wounded severely. So Christ is instructing us when this happens, peace must be restored between the two brothers or two sisters or whoever is involved, okay? And so the offending brother or sister must go and speak to the one that offended them. But please understand, go speak to them privately first. I mean, that's what Christ clearly says at the middle of verse 15. He says, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Okay? Privately to the person that offended them. In other words, they're not to go around to the church gossiping and him. Hey, did you hear that what brother so-and-so said to me? Oh, do you know how brother so-and-so treated me and, 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 and saying things like that or how he mistreated me? No, 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 no. We are to go personally to that particular brother in private and seeking to reconcile. Okay? Because Christ, again, said, go to him alone. And we're not to air this to everybody as to what happened, but to the offended person alone. <clears throat> when approaching that brother privately, do not go condescending either. Don't go to the brother. And when you go in private, don't go condescending, you know, yelling and screaming and telling them, you better repent or you better say you're sorry. Are you? No, 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 no. Okay? You need to go in peace. You need to go in mercy yourself. You're seeking restoration to the brother that has offended you. And you want to win him back. And sometimes you'll be surprised that the offended, the brother that offended you, that he might not even realize that he did that. Okay? That they offended you. And the point is that if he hears you, he should ask for forgiveness for offending you, and you have gained your brother. This is what God wants. But sad to say, this is not always the case. As we saw last week in, in my prior sermon, the problem that arises in many issues is the problem of pride. Sad to say, but true, pride. <clears throat> and I do remind you that the theme of the whole chapter of Matthew 18 is humility. Okay? Well, let's just say that in passing, sometimes the offense is not as great. Okay? Somebody says something, maybe jokingly, whatever. Something is said, and, and it might hurt you, but, I mean, sometimes there are things, you just let them go. You know? Just let it go. And I know sometimes it can be hard to let it go, but my point is that if it's nothing severe or a major issue, then let it go. But, I mean, if it happens again, then maybe you should go talk to the brother who, who offended you and, and deal with it. But the best thing is to deal with it before it escalates and it gets worse. And I hope you understand that what I'm saying also is that we also need to have a spirit that we're not so easily offended either. Okay? It works both ways. Now, if you know for sure that perhaps the offense was on purpose and he did it to hurt you, offend you, then yes, you must get the matter straightened out. But sometimes there was no intention there's no, it wasn't on purpose, okay? 
And sometimes we need to let it go, but this is how it would resolve the issue. But if it eats at you, and it affects you so much, and maybe you can't even sleep, whatever, then you have to go and take care of it. Then you have to really go and take care of it, because it's going to affect you. Okay? <clears throat> but again, going, talking to the brother that offended you, not being ugly or yelling at them, going in peace. <clears throat> Pride must be removed from both sides, from the person offended and the person that offended. Okay? Pride must be removed from one or both of them. The point is that the matter that peace should be restored, peace and reconciliation between the two brothers. <clears throat> and I would say that most of the time there is true reconciliation. But as I said, at times pride does kick in to the forefront and when that happens, it does create a problem, okay? <clears throat> if there are any problems for any reason, our Lord adds verse 16 to help settle the situation. Go tell the brother, you offended me in pride, or if he just says, well, so what? Or, you know, just has a hard heart. Well, then, verse 16, the Lord asks, and he says, but he will not hear thee. Then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So in verses 15 16, we see the attempt to reconcile the person who has offended the brother. So the offended brother goes back to the offender, either with one or two other brethren, so that in the mouth of more than one, more than one witness, everything will be established. Okay? The situation will be established. The witnesses are there to testify, not to give their two cents. Or try to get in the discussion. No, no, no. They're there to hear, to listen, to witness, to testify that there was an attempt made by the offended brother to reconcile with the brother that had offended them. Now, Christ here is really, he's teaching us something from the Old Testament because this was an Old Testament practice that you would take one or two witnesses, you know, with you when there was a situation or issue. I'll just read it to you from Deuteronomy 19 in verses 15 through 19. It says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for an in, any iniquity or any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. Excuse me. And at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him, that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. So Christ is taking the practice of the Old Testament to teach us this is what we need to do. So in the first attempt, the offended brother went by himself in private trying to reconcile the matter. The brother refused to hear him. So now he takes one, maybe two witnesses, so he can have proof. They can show that this brother is being unrepentant. He will not repent. He will not confess his error. He will not say that he's sorry and refuse to acknowledge the offense, refuses to reconcile, refuses to repent. And this is hard. But this is probably also proof of an unrepentant brother. If you ask me. So now the matter goes from being private to now having proof from two witnesses of the situation which is now going to go public to the church. Verse 17. And if you shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. If the first and second attempt fail, then the situation is brought before the church for consideration of the matter. The sad thing is, is that if the wrongdoer, that is the person that offended, if he refuses to listen to the church also, the end result is discipline, removal from church membership. Not only this, but if the person who offended the brother, that is, again, the wrongdoer, that person is now to be treated, how? As an unbeliever, that is, as a heathen, as a publican. This is so sad. But it does happen. And this is why Christ inserted the instruction here for us to deal with situations with this, like this. I mean, sad to say, this has happened to our church <clears throat> before. 
in the 33 years that we've been here and early in the church in the 90s at Hilburn Drive, uh, we had to discipline. I can't remember it was two, maybe three members, and only one of them was restored. But it, it happens in, 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 in churches that it has to be dealt with. The sad thing about the subject of church discipline is found in verse 18, because it says in verse 18, very clearly, remember Christ is speaking. He says, Verily I say unto you, and usually when he says that, he's like, I tell you the truth. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, the application of verse 18 is that the decision and authority of the church is upheld by Christ also. And this is why church discipline is not a light matter and has to be immersed in prayer before a decision is made. You see, the promise of Christ to his church is that whatever is bound on earth shall also be bound in heaven. And whatever is loose on earth is also loose in heaven. The point is, the worst scenario that can happen is that the person who committed this offense refuses to repent, refuses to reconcile for his action, even after that he is disciplined. Well, this disciplinary action is also bound in heaven. You see, this offending person might get so mad, even that he was disciplined, that he leaves the church in anger and just goes down the street and joins another church. But let me assure you that as long as he remains a disciplined person, he will be out of the will of God. No matter how many churches he joins, no matter what he does, as long as he does not deal with that issue for the rest of his life, he will be out of the will of God. He will be out of the will of God until he returns and straightens out the matter with the church. This does not mean he has to join the church again and be a member again. No, 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 no. But he just comes in repentance and you know, he's loose. Remember what's bound here on earth? It's bound in heaven. And the only thing that can lose that is that the person comes back and gets his heart right with that church and with the person that he offended. Then in heaven it's loose, and it's loose here on earth. And if he wants to come back, he can. If he wants to leave, he can leave. But the point is, the matter is taken care of. It is loose both in earth and in heaven. And thus, the importance of true biblical reconciliation is to help the person clear up the sin with everyone and especially with God also so that he would be loose on earth now that he can do the will of God. That is, to continue to walk in the path of righteousness for his namesake. But again, until this matter is resolved by the offended person, he will be out of the will of God and counted as a heathen that is lost like a publican. But when he reconciles, Himself, everything is lifted, and he is again loose on earth to serve God. But again, before discipline even takes place at any church, it should be immersed in prayer. And I believe this is why Christ added verses 19 and 20 to remind us of this. He said to verse 19, Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be for them. My, be done for them of my Father, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. In other words, Christ is promising his church that he will meet with them when they gather. Even if there's only two or three that gather his promises, I will be in their midst. Christ is admonishing us to pray before any type of discipline is administered. Then if there is a, an agreement in their evaluation and review and they're gathering together. Christ says, then it shall be done for them by God the Father in heaven. And to me, this is such a blessed promise of encouragement to his church when they have to go through such a difficult situation in the church. And so the subject of church discipline is not a light thing because even God is involved in the binding and losing in such a situation. So it, it is not a light thing, okay? And it's not something that the church, I think, should run too into quickly. But then after this, and you think this would be such a sensitive issue here that the Lord was dealing with, but then Peter comes to the Lord 
Okay? And ask Christ a question about forgiveness. And I'm not surprised that it was Peter. I mean, Peter was always an outspoken disciple. He would always say something even when all the other disciples were quiet. But again, in verse 21, it says, Then came Peter to him, that is to Christ, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Peter thought he could answer his own question. I mean, he may have felt that he was being very considerate, generous, that he himself would forgive somebody else seven times? Man, I'll do that. Now, the reason I say that is because the rabbis had a teaching. The religious Jews had a teaching and would teach that the most that you ever need to forgive somebody is three times, and after that, it's a done deal. And they took back from, from, the, from Amos 1-3, but it's taken out of context. And so maybe Peter here is thinking, I mean, I'm going to the ultimate limit. I'm doing more than half. I'm doing more than double. I mean, three and three, six, seven times, Lord. I mean, if I forgive him seven times, uh, I'm doing good, right? I mean, I've gone to the limit in forgiving a brother. Well, as always, the Lord answered Peter's. And he answers Peter, sweeping away all carnal concepts of forgiveness. All carnal considerations are turned aside because forgiveness goes beyond our own natural thoughts. Verse 22, Jesus answers and says unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. You see, the essence of forgiveness again goes beyond the natural. Can you imagine if God only forgave us seven times? We would all be in trouble. All of us. So the Lord swept away all carnal concepts of forgiveness as Christ goes beyond the norm. <coughs> if you do the math, well, you know, 70 times 7 is 490. Okay? 490 times. So, that means you keep count. Oh, oh here comes Brother Gary against Brother Joe. Gary, the 489 times. Oh, it's getting close. 490, whoo! So at 491, pow, I can hit him now, right? Yeah, that's what he's talking about? At 491, man, we can be so revengeful, and bam, I'll never hit you, brother. But, you know, I mean, amazing. Christ is not talking about a literal number. The point is, forgiveness is innumerable. That's the whole point. Innumerable. Not... Counting? No, 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 no. And I can almost imagine Peter and the disciples giving a look at Christ like, what? <laughs> that many times? But the point of Christ is not a particular number. But if you do name the name of Christ, you should always be ready to forgive. As, as I said, especially if you call yourself a Christian. I can't answer for the loss. But for the true child of God, forgiveness should always be part of your everyday life. It is part of our Christian walk in forgiving others that have offended us. And if I always said, really, in reality, you can go to any church and I can tell you who the most offended person is. It's the pastor. But you know what? It comes with the territory. And that's where I learned those two important factors that helped me in my life. That I can lay in my bed at night and go to sleep and not worry about it regardless. Number one, just let it go. Man, those people don't let it go. It just eats at you, eats at you, eats at you, eats at you. You go to sleep, it's eating at you. You wake up in the middle of the night, it eats at you. Wake up in the morning, it's eating you. You go to work, it's eating you. And everybody's wondering, I thought you were a Christian. You're walking around with a long face, sour face. I say this carefully. I used to be so blessed when I worked at Land Equipment. They would tell me, why are you having a smile, Joe? Because the Lord saved me. He saved me. It's good when you see people with a smile. You know, when you go to the restaurant and when the server comes, what do you want? <laughs> but when he comes, hi, how you doing? Oh, you feel like, oh, wow. It's nice. It's amazing, really, when you think about it. But the point is, just let it go. And the other one is also a four-letter word. It can be worse. No matter what it is, it can always be worse. And so a true child of God should always be ready to forgive. Okay? Those who have offended us. 
And then the Lord gives the best example in a parable to teach Peter, to teach disciples, and to teach all of us this morning, everybody on Facebook, everybody that will listen to Sermon 9 later on, to teach us a wonderful lesson. Okay? To teach us the importance of forgiveness. And that is in verses 23 to 35. But Christ uses a very, very important illustration on the subject of forgiveness. Now, as we go through this text, there's two verses I want you to concentrate because the one word that is in both of these verses. Read them with me. Verse 30 and verse 32. In verse 30 it says, <coughs> And he would not, but went and cast him into prison, that he should pay the debt. Verse 32. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desired more. In both of these verses, the word death is used as describing the amount owed by the servant. But let me just say this. Everybody look up here. I just said we're going to read two verses. Y'all keep reading. The application of death in this parable is the application of sin. Okay, that's why I wanted to read those two verses. Because of sin. The word death is to remind us of sin. Because sin is a debt, oh, which no one has the means or power to pay our own sin debt. Only God can pay our sin debt in Christ. And so kind of remember this as we go through the parables. But then here is Christ's parable to Peter's seven times only forgiveness. Verse 23, it said, Therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of a servant, and when he had done, when he had begun to reckon one, was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his lord commanded him to be sold, his wives, children, and all that he had, and payment be, to be made. And the servant therefore fell down, worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. Now, the application of this parable is very valuable because this parable is basically a picture of all of us in this auditorium this morning. What Christ is doing to Peter, to his disciples, and to us this morning is it's almost as the Lord Jesus Christ is holding up a mirror. We will see ourselves like that servant who was before his master owing a great amount of debt. You see, all those who have been saved in Christ are like that servant who has been forgiven a vast and staggering amount of money. It's speaking of a debt, a debt of 10,000 talents. Incredible lot of money. Then one writer said it's like owing $10 million in our day. So the day came, the king is settling his account with the accountant and the, looking at all the things and he sees that this servant owes him a lot of money. And so he brings him forth. But then the servant is not able to pay the amount. Again, the king in this parable represents God in heaven. The servant represents all sinners. That is all of us. No one is exempt as all of us are born into this world in sin. From the moment you come out from the mama's womb, that sin debt is added and added and added and added. So the king orders, in his parable orders, that justice be carried out. 10,000 talents, $10 million are owed to me. Justin must be... Well, guess what? The God in the Bible is a God of justice. And justice for sin will be meted out one day. Oh, yes. 
And so, the king ordered that his servant, his wife, children, everything that he had to be sold. But, you know, when you really think about it, even all of that would fall far short of the debt. But in such desperation, this man thinks he can pay up the debt and falls upon his knees, probably weeping. And he does address him graciously because he calls him Lord. He addresses him correctly. He says, Lord, have patience with me. I will pay thee all. I mean, even if this servant worked all his lifetime, even if his family, if his wife, children work and everything, he would never be able to pay that debt. He would never be able to pay $10 million. But in such desperation, he cries out. And in doing so, the heart of the king is moved. He's moved with this man's impossible situation. And out of pity toward him, he forgives him the debt. And it does... This king, he does this at a staggering cost to himself because it meant that the king himself would assume the debt, allowing it to go unpaid, and it would impoverish his treasury. This was no petty matter, like owing somebody, you know, $10 or $100 or something like that. No, no, it was a staggering amount. But the king forgave the debt. And again, this is such a glorious picture of the grace of the forgiveness of God to sinners. Because again, understand that all of us have a sin debt before God. But I want to show you how God in grace and mercy has forgiven our sin debt in Christ for all those to come to Christ for salvation. Because the question is, what is salvation? Salvation is being saved from our sins. That's what salvation is. Many people think that salvation is being saved from hell. No. The fact that a person doesn't go to hell is a benefit. No. Salvation is being saved from our sins. That's what salvation is. And every one of us this morning are debtors to God. Debtors whose account must one day be reckoned with by God and settled. If you're outside Christ this morning, please know, again, that we're all debtors to God. And this sin debt must be paid. But the problem is, you cannot pay that sin debt. You don't have the ability to pay that sin debt. Religion can't do it. Trying to keep the law can't do it. I mean, well, maybe I'll do good work. That's not going to help either. The only way sin debt can be paid is by having a mediator, having a surety, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man, as First John two fifteen, excuse me, First Timothy two two five says. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Then the Catholics think that the Virgin Mary is a mediator, that the Virgin Mary is some sort of co-redemptrix. No, she's not. The Virgin Mary cannot help you, cannot save you, cannot do anything for you. The Virgin Mary is not a mediator. She's not a co-redemptor. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of sinners. Christ is the only one that can pay sin, death. No one can. Nothing else can. No one can. Only Christ. This is why Peter reminds us there in Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other. No other way. For there is no other name in heaven given under man whereby we must be saved except in the name of Christ. If we are to find forgiveness for our sin debt, we must sue God for mercy. The God of all grace against whom we have sinned is ready, ready to forgive, ready to pardon with His infinite free grace, mercy, and love to forgive the sins, to cancel the sin debt to all that call upon Him. Just like the king in this parable God will forgive all your sin debt if you would just come to Him in repentance and come in faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember anything from my sermon this, this morning, just remember this. This phrase, sin, death, must be paid. If you're outside Christ and die in that state, the payment for sin is fearful. Because the Word of God is very clear because in Romans 6.23 it says, for the wages of sin is death. 
That is the word wages means the payment for sin. That death for sin is death. That is the eternal death separated from God in hell. But I'm so glad that Romans 6.23 doesn't end there. Because right in the middle of that, there's a word but. And you know that I love the buts of the Bible. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's the hope. A hope is in Christ. Jesus Christ is the only payment for sin that God will accept. Anything else? Anyone else? Including religion, good works, everything? Leads to nothing but condemnation. Only Christ can deliver. I'll come back to this in a moment. Because I want to see the second part of this parable that you should know by now this end, sadly. Again, in verse 28, it says, But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet beside him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Wow. That's crazy. After this same man was acquitted, acquitted, pardoned from his debt, which I remind you, this man had no way to pay back $10 million, had no way to pay back, goes home, finds someone that's working for him that owes him money, owes him 100 pence, which would be about $100 in that day. He had been forgiven for $10 million and this worker of his owes him $100. Boy, he forgot so soon, didn't he? Because he who had been forgiven was unforgivable. So sad. He would not forgive his servant. Worse than that, he even physically mistreated him. He laid hands on him, grabbed him from the throat. Wow. But this servant of his, he did, even though he was physically mistreated, he did the same thing. He fell down at his master's feet. Like in the first parable, or the beginning of the, first, uh, of the parable, in verse 29, he fell on his feet and begged his master to be patient with him. And he said the same thing, I will pay thee. But again, in verse 30, the same man that was forgiven of a debt of about $10 million, we see that his nature was not changed one bit, as he was still the same wicked, cruel man he had always been. Verse 30 says, And he would not, but cast him into prison that he should pay the debt. Wow. Greatly forgiven and would not forgive a mere $100 debt. His unforgiven nature greatly affected all those around him. Because we also read in verses 31 and following. It says, So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then the Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou hast also had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he shall pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your heart forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. I hope you're getting the idea that the whole point here is what forgiveness the importance of forgiveness especially if you call yourself a true child of God forgiveness the loss yeah just like this man they'll do the same thing my 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 what a sad ending to a parable that began with such forgiveness and compassion and mercy and let me just say this I want anybody to misunderstand me let me understand the end result. This man here, who would not forgive, he was not saved. Okay? Please understand that. He was not saved. He did not, quote unquote, lose his salvation as some would preach. No. No. 
the man here was not saved. He was not regenerated, that is, born again. This unforgiving spirit clearly reveals the heart of an unregenerated heart. But I know some of you might be thinking, yeah, but Joe, but this parable was given to the 12 disciples who were followers of Christ and Christians. So how can that be? Well, thank you for asking me. My answer is real simple to you. You see, one of Christ's disciples had an unregenerated heart. He was lost. He was a mere pretender. He was very religious, and in the end, he ended up in hell. Please understand that religion will not help you. On the other side of the coin, religion can also keep you from Christ. Being mere religious is very dangerous as it gives you a self-righteous spirit like this man in this parable. The disciple, of course, I'm speaking about is Judas Judas Iscariot. He was a fake. He was a mere religious man, a mere pretender of being a Christian. And sadly, he died in that state and he faced the eternal consequences in the pit of hell for his own sin, death. And you might ask, why, why, why would then Christ share this with his disciples and include the church in chapter 17? I mean, verse 17. Another good question. Because Christ knew that within the ranks of his church that he created, that he built, he knew that in his church, at times, there would be unregenerated members. Okay? who were lost and self-deceived. And so, yes, there are members in various churches that are lost. And so this is really such a fearful warning to mere professors of Christ who do not possess Christ. There's professors and there are possessors of Christ, possessing Christ in the true grace of salvation. You know, as Christ already mentioned, and we saw this in Matthew 15, Christ said, remember what he said about those villages? They just follow me, what? With their lips, the heart is far from me. This man in the parable was a mere pretender. And he manifested his wicked heart. How? By having an unforgiving spirit. That's how. Which many religious people do practice. You don't know how many times I've heard this and go, but Pastor Joe, you don't know what they did to me. But Pastor Joe, you don't know what they said. But Pastor Joe, how they treated me. But Pastor Joe. I'm going, okay, I understand that. But they never tell me what they did or how they treated others or what they do. But oh, it's all about me, myself, and I. Oh, I can't believe this, Pastor Joe, what they did to me. And, and I'm like, wow. Now, I will say this much. A true child of God one who has been redeemed, one who has been regenerated, one who is truly born again, a born-again Christian, one whose heart has been truly changed, that person will always be ready to forgive. Why? Because they know the experience of being forgiven of all their sins. All their sins. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount? After teaching on the importance of prayer, teaching us how to praise, I'll just read the last part of it in Matthew 6. He says, And forgive us our debts. That's the whole point, huh? As we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the point of the parable. If you will not forgive men their trespasses, how do you expect God to forgive your trespasses? No. It's not a work salvation. No, no. I'm not talking about work salvation. No. I'm talking about a true work of salvation by the grace of faith. So to answer Peter's question in verse 21, that he asked, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? How often? I'm going to spell it to you. Capital A, capital correct, yeah, capital A, capital L, capital W, capital A, 
W-Y, W-S. Always! Always! How often, Peter? Always! A true child of God always forgives. Yes, that's the whole point. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians church in Ephesians 4.32, And ye be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake and forgiving you. That's the whole point. Now, remember earlier I said, I'll come back to this in a moment. <clears throat> but we wanted to see the second part of the parable. But in case you forgot already, <laughs> if you remember anything from my sermon, remember what? Sin debt must be paid. And please understand that, again, every one of us here has a sin debt. But the question this morning is, has your sin debt, sin debt been paid by Christ? Let me tell you something fearful. You're outside Christ and still in your sins. Do you even know that your sins accrue daily? Every single day. And they accrue daily with interest. Oh, you don't believe that, do you? Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. If we look at Romans 2, you know what? Before we do that, I know it's getting late, but I, 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 I need to just share a little bit of Romans 1 of why Paul said what he did in Romans 2. Okay? Notice what preceded these words by Paul in Romans 1. Look at Romans 1, uh, just quickly, verses uh, 21 and 22. It says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. This is speaking of mere religious people, even church-going people. When it says, when they knew God, this does not mean that they knew him in the grace of salvation. It's that, that they knew about God. Many people just know about God. Okay? It's like me saying, I don't know President Biden personally. I don't know him personally. But I know about him. I know about him. That's what he means here. Everyone knows about God. And you know that in Romans 1, Romans 1 reveals to us the three witnesses of God. Right. Did you know God had three witnesses? They will be brought out on judgment day. Oh yeah. The first one is the word of God himself. There's so much here. I mean, I'm just going to, for example, Romans 1.16, you know, it says, for I'm not, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. They want to believe it, the Jew first, not to agree. In other words, the power of God unto salvation, we're in the gospel, there's the word of God. The word of God, the commandment of God is a witness to you. Or if you wish, the commandments of God. You know, before I forget, let me just say this. Regarding sins, you know when you talk about sins, there's sins of commission and there's sins of omission. Were you still guilty? People have never realized that. The sins of omission. And both of them, commission and omission, will be added to your debt. <clears throat> what I mean by the sense of omissions is when we omit something that we should be doing that is not obeying what the word of God teaches we omit it from our lives <clears throat> not obeying the commandments of God for example it says thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart all the soul all the mind and then when it says and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself you omit that guess what it's a sin I mean, I mean, just think how many sins we omit and guilty of the sin of omission. We can add so many more. I mean, even in the aspect of our sermon, the whole aspect, the sin of omitting forgiveness. You won't forgive somebody because they offended you. Oh, no, 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 no. So there is the sin of omission. But again, as I said, the first witness is the commandments of God. But the second witness is found in verse 19. There's more to that, but I'm giving you the short version. I don't have time to go through the whole thing. The second witness is found in, in verse 19 at the beginning. It says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. You get that phrase? In them. And guess what the in them is talking about? 
See, the second witness of God is the conscience. That which is manifest in them. In their conscience. And I can assure you that even the atheist has to confess this. Because they even know, we all know when we commit a sin or do something wrong, maybe not every sin, but when we commit something wrong, that even for a small second or even a nanosecond, inside something tells you you did something wrong. Mommy and daddy doesn't have to be there and say, John, don't be doing that. Junior, don't be doing that. Inside your own conscience, just for a split second, tells you, uh-uh, don't be doing that. Don't be looking at that. Don't be saying that. That's your conscience. That's a witness of God to you. That there is a God. Your own conscience brings that guilt, even if it's worth a split second. I mean, maybe just taking a pin from, from work, you know? Stealing a, a little dollar, you know, here and there. Cheating a little bit here and there. You know what you're doing is wrong. You know, that's your guilt telling you. That's your conscience telling you. That's wrong. My point is, at the moment of that transgression, guilt comes in, which is the witness of God. The conscience. Guilt always tells you there is a God. And then thirdly, quickly, is the glorious creation of God. Look at the second part of verse 19. It says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God had showed it unto them. It went from in them now to unto them outwardly. Inwardly is the conscience. Now outwardly is in verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and get Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They have no excuse. The third witness of God is creation. Look around when you go somewhere and you see, I mean, just great sights. You know, when the sun is going down and coming up and you look at the great sight, you go, wow, it's glorious. God created that. God created that. The world itself is a testimony, a witness that there is a God, that there is a great and mighty God which created this beautiful world that we live in. You know, even the planets that we see at night, Gary, remember those planets, Gary? <clears throat> Do you know that God knows every single planet by, by name? Did you know that? Every single planet God knows by name. And there's still some planets that the scientists haven't found yet, but God still knows them by name. Unless you believe in some big bang theory, you know, that everything just, pow, happened out of nowhere. Known as evolution, you know, from Mr. Charles Darwin. Evolution is so deceptive. But the truth is found. That Bible that you're holding in your hand, everybody look up here. That Bible you're holding in your hand, guess what? The very first two verses. My, my, my. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the earth. Yes, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, these three witnesses, the Bible, the commandment of God, the conscience and creation are given to us by God to show us that there is a God. Because when they knew God, that's my point. They knew something about God. But sadly it says, they glorified Him not. Always taking the Lord's name in vain. I don't know why people think that God's last name is damn. Because irritates me to no end. You know. And they use God's name in various ways and Jesus' name and so very No, no, taking the Lord's name in vain. They glorify him not as God, neither were thankful. Verse 21. But became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. They knew about God because of these three witnesses. Again, not in the aspect of salvation, but in the knowledge that there is a God, but they glorify Him not. 
they, they were neither thankful, like the man in the parable, he wasn't thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and thus their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, verse 22, professing themselves, professing them to be wise, <laughs> they became fools. For the sake of time, just drop down to verse, to verse 28. Verse 28, quickly. Let's bring it to Romans 2. And even if they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperer, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, which describes the man in the parable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them to do them. Whoo, talk about sin, death. There you have it. Now this brings us to the point that sin also accrues daily before God. But I wanted to, you to see some, some sins that were mentioned. And I have to say, when I was lost, I probably committed every single one of those sins, not knowing that all my sins were daily accruing before me. And that I would have to pay for them one day. But now, Romans chapter 2. Quickly. At verse 1. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, that judges for within, thou judges another, thou condemnest thyself for Thou that judges do the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth and against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judges them which do such things and do the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasure up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul says, he wrote Romans, he said, to those that are so judgmental, Paul says to them, you're inexcusable, especially if you do the same thing that you just people of doing, condemning them. But in verse 2, we're told that the judgment of God will be how? Not according to man, but according to truth. Then in the same verse, and the same judgmental people reminded that if you judge others for the same things you do, how are you going to escape the judgment of God? Then in verse 4, we're shown the blessings and goodness of God. Speaking of his forbearance and long-suffering with us. In other words, every time we sin, we're not stricken with a bolt of lightning from heaven. No. The forbearance of God. The long-suffering of God. And the whole point of Paul is that God's long suffering and forbearance, his goodness would what? Lead you to repentance. That's the whole point. That it would bring you to repentance. But then in verse 5, if you continue in your sins and rebellion against God because of the hardness of your impenitent heart, you would treasure up wrath upon yourself on that day of judgment and the day and revelation of the holy righteous judgment of God. Again, again, I remind you that the God of the Bible is a God of justice. There will be a judgment for sin. Now, the word I want you to consider is the word treasureth. Treasureth. In the middle of verse 5. This is where the impenitent heart treasures up wrath because of sin. In other words, this word treasureth, it's a banking term. And it's like going into a bank, purchasing a CD, and what do you do? You earn interest on your CD. You are accruing interest on your CD for that money. So the application of this in verse 5 of Romans 2 is that each day that you live lost and outside Christ, you are treasuring up wrath, the wrath of God. In other words, you are accruing wrath for your sins, interest for your sins. And if you die in that state without Christ, only impending doom awaits you. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. So it's not a light thing. It's not a light thing to die without Christ. 
This is why I'm so adamant in compelling those outside Christ to come to Him and be saved. Because we, in no way, have the ability to pay for our sins. Our sins are innumerable. I wish I had time to take a calculator, and, and, and I'm 68 years old, and just say, you know, I, I commit 25 cents a day, you multiply that times 365, multiply that times 68. I mean, it's up in the hundreds of thousands, you know. Unbelievable when you think about it, how many sins we have sinned before God. And that's the whole point of this parable teaching us of the importance that God's forgiveness is gracious, especially if we're not able to pay our debt. You're not able to pay a sin debt. My, my, my. We have no way to pay it. They're so innumerable. As I said, like the man in the parable, sin upon sin every day, having millions of sins before God. In other words, as sinners, sinners are in great debt to God. But guess what? God sent the remedy for our debt. He sent Christ to pay the ransom for sin. In Christ, all our sins are paid for in full. How? By the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those in Christ, we're told in 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Christ, this son, cleanses us from all our sins, every sin. No matter how numerous they are, all of them, the blood of Christ washes us from our sins. Acts 3, 9, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive the sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Revelation 1, 5, unto him that loved us and watched us from all our sins in his own blood. Thus, Romans 4, 7, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered, that is covered in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came for the purpose to save us from our sins. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ has also suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. In other words, Christ came that he would bring us to God, that we might have peace with God. And therefore, here in Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that's the whole point. <coughs> and this is the hope for all us people. They can have peace with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness of sins. You know, I'll end with this quickly. God does two things for us when he saves us from our sins. First of all, all our sins are forgiven. That is our past, present, future sins. All our sins are paid for in Christ's holy blood. Forgiven. But then secondly, according to Hebrews, he says, For I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Can you believe that? Our sins through Christ, our sins are not only forgiven by God, but they are forgotten. I mean, how glorious is that? Yes, we should be the first one ready to forgive when somebody offends us. When we think of the number of sins our great God has forgiven us. Yes. You know, we're told in Isaiah 38, 17 that God would take our sins and cast them behind His own back. In Micah, we're told, who is a God like unto thee that pardoned iniquity, passed it by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retained not his anger forever because he delighted in mercy. He will, he will turn again and will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and will cast all our sins into the depths of their sea. That's the God of the Bible. Why? Because God delights in mercy. As Christ said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. This is the living and true God of that Bible that you hold in your hands. He delights in great mercy and compassion. So my question is to you, why won't you come to Christ even now? Why do you wait? Come to Christ this very moment. Come and repent to God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Christ this very moment and hear those blessed words in your heart. Son, daughter, thy sins be forgiven thee. And to those of us who are saved, we are saved sinners. Those who have been pardoned, purchased by the blood of Christ, forgiven of all our sins by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. There's a sense that we're also debtors, that we owe God a mighty debt, a gratitude of his love toward us in saving us, just like the hymn writer would say, when I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thy art, 
love thee with an unthinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not then, how much I owe. Whoo, that's glorious. And so again, you outside Christ this morning, listen to these words. I compel you to come right now. Because Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous men his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray.